Good morning, church. It's really good to be with you. I, let me just start by saying a couple introductory thoughts. One, you have an amazing church and some amazing leaders um, that are over this. Terrible jokes, but amazing people. And um, they are uh, Mike and Chad in particular. I know there are many more, and the elders. Um, and you have an amazing pastor in Stephen. He's a dear friend of mine, and I'm thrilled that you guys get to get him back in a few weeks. And and, and it, but at the same time, it's been really, really fun to be with you. It's been so good for my own heart and mind and soul. And it's just been great to get to see folks week after week and connect with you, some before and after service, and even some outside of this. So thank you for your, your just kindness to me and to my family. It's been really fun to be here and to be with you. So we're in a series, and uh, this is the final week of four weeks, and it's been entitled Waiting on Christmas. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of that when, when the wait is over. And I got to the beginning of the week, and I started thinking to myself, we have talked for three straight weeks just on two people, really, Zechariah and Elizabeth and their story in a lot of ways. And I thought, you know what, it's time. We've got to talk about Jesus, since we've got to get to this birth, because some of y'all are like, are you ever going to talk about that? And um, you know what season it is? And I thought, yes, we're going to get to it. So I turned in a passage, and I was really excited about it, and then I... The more and more I thought about it, I thought, you know, there's more to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth that, that, that I didn't get to finish. And so, so you get two sermons in one. And some of y'all are going, really? No. Um, the reality is that there is more to, to, to be uh, told. And I would be doing you and the story a massive injustice if I didn't share, you know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. So some of y'all... Know what I'm talking about? Some of you, yeah. So if you're over 50, you got that reference. If you're, if you're under 50, you might want to Google that and understand what I just said. But anyway, the point is that I want you to make this personal, and I want us uh, to talk a little bit about Zechariah before we get into Jesus. And so we're going to talk about Luke 1, the, the, the part at the end that's really entitled kind of Zechariah's uh, song, and then uh, Luke 2, which part of it's already been read in the readings. And we will go there. So I've got four points. The first three are on, on Zechariah, and the last point is on Jesus. And here are the four points. When the waiting is over, number one, the gift becomes the giver, right? The gift becomes a giver. Number two, silence becomes a strong song. Number three, the restrainer becomes our rescuer. And then finally, the waiting turns to worship and to witness. So that's where we're going. So point number one. The gift becomes the giver. If there's a kind of a heading that's over all of these points, it really, in a sense, can be over the story. I take that back. In, uh, not just over this story, but the entirety of true Christianity, if you would. That, uh, you can simply say that for those who are in Christ, the gift doesn't just become a thing or a person or a, a material good, but the gift itself of life becomes the giver of all good gifts. We see this straight out of Zechariah's song. Um, as soon as the child is born to, uh, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, we read this, that his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. You see, when the waiting is over, um, this reality that the gift... Um, that the giver really becomes, uh, I'm sorry, that the gift becomes the giver, uh, that somewhere in our hearts we become like Zechariah and Elizabeth of old, uh, we begin to speak forth praise, right? The first things out of our mouth are not our insecurities, they're not our 
our sufficient uh, in our insufficiencies like they're not our weaknesses but the thing that comes out of our mouth more than anything else is praise he joins his wife in just gracious praise speaking forth of the father remember what elizabeth said just a few verses earlier she says the lord has done this for me well zacharias in the same vein says praise be to the lord the god of israel that somewhere in there they recognize they're not perfect they were clearly graced. They were clearly given demerited favor upon them, still longing for the gift of a, of a baby, and yet somehow the giver had become greater, that the giver of all good things had become central in their lives, um, that really the gift became the giver. So <clears throat> let's keep reading. Um, uh, sorry, the second point is this. The silence becomes a powerful song. Verse 69, uh, he raised up a horn of salvation for us, speaking here of, of God, the God of Israel. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So we go on, not only has the gift become a giver, but silence turns into a song, right? That silence, remember uh, Zacharias was silence, he sat in silence. In that time of like just sitting there in complete silence, could not speak what happened inside of him was, was a, a birth of a song, you know? And in this text, even though it's not explicitly stated that this is a song, in most headings in scriptures, this is known as Zacharias' song. And in, even in church history, there's the reality is that, that this was sung as a song. So even though it's not explicit, I do believe that song is very appropriate here because it is a hymn of praise. It's just him just bursting forth in praise to God. And I don't know if you've ever been around a little child just kind of when they're in their most pure, kind of sacred space, if you would. If you ever uh, come around our house and you're ever around our five-year-old and he's just kind of quietly playing, he's not harassing his brothers, he's not harassing his parents, he's, uh, he's just kind of quietly sitting there playing, you can walk by his room and I promise you, you'll, uh, most times you'll hear him playing, but you'll also hear him singing. Like he's just got a song that he just keeps singing. Some of it's hymns. Some of it's secular music that we listen to, <laughs> so uh, kind of funny. And a uh, cute little voice singing, um, you know, Your Body's a Wonderland by John, John Mayer is, not, is pretty funny, but uh, <laughs> oftentimes it's praise, too. So my wife is going to kill me when she hears I said that. But anyway, moving on. Out of his little happy heart, my friends, out of my little man's heart flows naturally a song. Like, it's not for anyone's hearing, it's not for anyone's recognition, Right? But it flows from a happy, full, simple heart that just sings forth. Now, I know my five-year-old will experience disappointment. I know, I hope at some point he will understand his sin and his shame at a deep level that will draw him to a Savior. I know that disappointments will enter in. He will lose that song. But oftentimes, um, what we pray towards and what we trust and what we, what we, we entrust to the Lord, that God will reinstate a song, right? This reminds me of a verse in the Old Testament from the book of Hosea. It's a story that's very painful to read, if I'm really honest with you, uh, but it, it, because it's a story of God's amazing heart for his people, a broken heart for his people. What you begin to see in the story of Hosea in the Old Testament is really that God calls Hosea, his prophet, his servant, to marry a woman who will continuously turn her back on him, walk away from him, run after other men over and over. And God uses this to, in the heart of his prophet to show his own heart for his own people 
You and I who betray God ourselves. We are the ones who turn our back on God. We are the ones who turn away. And yet God, over and over, just like Hosea, comes after us, calls us back, brings us back. And in Hosea 2, this is what it says. Therefore, behold, I, speaking of God, will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to to, uh, her. Friends, this is not just a description of Gomer, but this is also a, a description of us. Like that God will come, bring us into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there. The gift uh, is the giver. The valley of, of Achor, the valley of trouble as a door of hope. Isn't that beautiful picture? <laughs> that what God gives to us is a door of hope. Whether that's blessing, whether that's waiting, whether that's trouble, that as we walk through that, there is a door of hope pointing to a greater reality that is to come. And this is the part I love. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. That what God restores to us is that song. No matter what we have done, no matter what has been done to us, no matter what shame, whatever silence has entered into our lives, no matter how, how long of a waiting period that you have, friends, those are doors of hope that are pointing to a greater reality. And that greater reality is that we will sing again. And that is why, and, and that's what's happening with Zechariah, that this is a song that bursts forth in, from out of a happy heart that's flowing so naturally uh, of, one, of one who is full and full of the gift and the giver. It's not just any song. It's a powerful song. This horn of salvation, friends, the meaning of that is that it, it comes from a powerful animal, that there's not just a, a simple song, but it's a song that's sung in power, in strength. And not only that, But do you realize that who Zechariah is praising in in particular here? He's not just praising the gift. He's not just praising the fact that I've got a son now. I've I've been longing for a son. In fact, my longings had been gone for so long. Like I had had given up on those prayers years ago, and yet he showed up and he he gave me a gift. That's not who he's praising God for, because later we see, he says, and you, my, my, my child will be called a prophet, speaking of John. So that's not who he's talking about here, not who he's praising. It's not even that he's praising God the Father. We see, friends, he's praising Jesus, that the gift becomes the giver. Check that out. The horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, that we recognize that this is Jesus himself. And so we know, friends, that the gift becomes the giver. Silence becomes a strong song that's sung forth from us. Thirdly, the restrainer, becomes our rescuer. The restrainer becomes our rescuer. Let me continue to read verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as, as, he's, um, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I love that last part, that, that Jesus has come, that what is flowing out of Zacharias' mouth is praise to God the Father and for the, the horn of salvation. And he says that he's coming to rescue us. In the book uh, Shattered Dreams, Christian uh, counselor and psychologist Larry Crabb talks about God's silence. He talks about this idea of waiting. And this is his quote that I just think is so powerful. He says this, There are times in life when it would be easier to not believe in God at all than to believe in Him and wonder where He is. 
Anyone else relate to that? Like, there are just times, it'd just be easier, really, to be a functional atheist, right? Like, I just don't want to even believe that you exist. Goes on to say later in this chapter, he's not mad at us, he is not indifferent, he's not helpless, and his commitment to his own glory ensures our joy because he glorifies himself by revealing his character, and his character is love. Goes on to write, Jesus is filled with desire for us. He is right now cutting the cake, waiting, waiting, I'm sorry, eagerly awaiting the Father's signal to clear away the vegetables and bring on the dessert. I just love that, right? Like, what a beautiful picture, right? And like, Jesus is eagerly waiting to clear away the vegetables. He's cutting the cake, getting ready to give to us, right? If we, if we believe that, we would rest. We would still hurt. Sometimes we would scream. Occasionally we would sin to feel the relief of momentary pleasure, but we would rest. But we would rest. And then the last quote here, in the middle of our shattered dreams, Jesus is restraining himself for reasons we cannot fully understand from ending our pain. That Jesus is restraining himself. He goes on, the rest of this chapter and the following chapter in this book, Shattered Dreams, to, to share another story from the Old Testament, and that is the story of Ruth and Naomi, and specifically Boaz, the Redeemer, the one who is the pointer to Jesus who is to come, right? Like, so Ruth uh, is, uh, ha- is a widow, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, is, um, has, has actually come back home and is back home amongst her people, and she says, stop calling me Naomi, call me bitter, Right? Uh, because I have, uh, because God has dealt so bitterly with me, it goes on, and lo and behold, out of the darkness of the ashes of all the devastation that's happened, um, these, this ember of this light comes forth. This kinsman redeemer, this this pointer to Jesus, a, a man named Boaz who can come, marry her, and reestablish the family. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of, of God's heart. Um, in causing calamity, but then allowing, allowing those calamities to happen, and, yet, and, then, and then showing up in the midst of waiting and in, in the midst of silence. And so he goes on, and if you've ever read the scripture, you begin to realize the Bible is not boring. Christianity is not boring, right? You and I have very boring eyes because if you read this book, it is incredibly um, sexual in nature, right? There's parts of this where she offers herself at his feet in the middle of the night in his bed to this man, Boaz, and says, I'm yours. You can take me, right? If you're reading the text, that's what happens. And he shows incredible amounts of restraint, my friend. He shows incredible amounts of restraint. He says, wait here. I need to take care of some legal matters, right? And then I'll be back. And so she goes home. And she's like, I don't understand. What's going on here? Like, I thought he wanted me. I know I want him. This is not right. This is not fair. And I love her, her mother-in-law's words to her because I think these are words to us. And this is what Naomi says to, his, to her daughter. In the midst of the kinsman redeemer has gone. He's silent. He's no longer there. Like, what's going on? This is what she says. Wait, my daughter. Wait. Until you find, what, uh, find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The man will not rest until the matter is settled today. That is a pointer, my friends, to the birth of Jesus, right? That the man will not rest until this matter today. 
What is more amazing than our pain? And our pain is real. Like the silence is real. The waiting is real. But what is more amazing is that the restrainer, right, um, is that the pain is, is God's restraint. The fact that he's holding back, that he's cutting the cake, he's preparing for us in the midst of our wait, that the restrainer has become our rescuer. Our restrainer has become our rescuer. The final point, and this will turn to Luke chapter 2. The waiting turns to worship, and the waiting turns to witness. Okay? The final point in, in this series and in this message is that the, our waiting... God puts our waiting into our lives. It, he turns it to worship and he turns it to witness. Let me read from, you, uh, from um, Luke chapter 2, verses 4 on. So Joseph also um, went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. By the way, little side note. Do you know who David's great-grandfather was? Boaz the kingsman redeemer to Ruth, right? Um, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in clothes, and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's keep reading. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Isn't that beautiful? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of Beth, uh, David, um, sorry, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe, baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Next slide. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Next slide. When the angels had seen, uh, I'm sorry, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So we read in this story, there are three witnesses in this text that I just want to point out to you, right? That our waiting turns to worship, but it also turns to witness. But before I like reveal to you these three witnesses, let me explain just one thing about witnessing, right? Like when we think about witness, I think you think about like something I must do, right? Like it's something I must do to talk about Jesus with one another. Well, when the scriptures talk about witnessing, that maybe the simplest way of saying this, my friends, is that you and I are called to witness, what we witness. You and I are called to witness what we witness. Let me be a little more clear. You and I are called to witness what we witness, right? What you and I see in our hearts, what you and I experience and know from Jesus, that is what we're called to just proclaim. And here's the beauty. You can't help but witness what you witness, right? There's a reason why LeBron James... When he showed up, they put shirts called Witness and they gave it to everyone who was in the arena because you got to see greatness. You can't help but speak 
of the things that you see. If you want another context of this, look at Acts, right? Like, I love the book of Acts, because it starts off by Acts 1, where um, Luke is writing again, and what Luke says is, the first book I wrote, all that you've seen and heard, right, about Jesus. Then they go on, and you know that the Pentecost happens, and then Peter and his buddies are out, and, and what happens? They're witnessing, and they get thrown in jail. They get beaten, and they come before the officials, and I love their response, because <laughs> the officials say, you've got to stop talking. You've got to stop talking about Jesus, you know, and they're like, look, if it's wrong for us to talk about Jesus, that's your prerogative. You've got to do what you've got to do, right? He goes, but this is, what he, this is what Peter says, we cannot stop speaking of the things we've seen and heard. We witness what we witness, okay? So there's an invitation to come and witness. Now, who are the witnesses in this text? Well, first witness of three is the angels are witnessing. <laughs> they're, they're sitting in the heavens, and they're seeing the birth of the Savior of the world, and they can't help it, right? Like, I love this, that the angel just shows up to these shepherds, this obscure reality that's happened, that salvation has entered into the world, and the angels show up to these shepherds, and they start proclaiming. <laughs> they start witnessing of the things that are happening. And in particular, verse 13, in the midst of this angel speaking forth and saying, hey, don't be afraid, I come to bring you good news. That, you know, I come to bring you this good news that will produce great joy in your life. This host of angels show up, right? And they start shouting. They start praising God. They can't help it. It's almost like they're sitting back and they're sitting back and they, and they just burst forth in praise because they can't help witness what they have witnessed. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared to them saying, glory to God in the highest. They couldn't be stopped. As soon as Jesus is proclaimed, right, his birth. They burst into praise. So the first witness we see here is the angels on high. The second is, that, uh, is the shepherds themselves. So when, um, the, when they show up to these shepherds, what do they do? They say, we've got to go see what, what, if these things are true. And let me continue to read, and there's not a slide, so just bear with me. Um, he said, let's go to Bethlehem and see the things that have happened, which the Lord has told us about. Verse 16, so they hurried off. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You see, friends, shepherds back in the day, they were blue-collar, ordinary folks, right? Like they weren't high and mighty. They weren't the spiritual leaders. In fact, not only were they just blue collar, but they were also often known as, as being deceptive and thieves. Like the, the, these were like lower than low, low. And it's so interesting to me that Jesus would just come in a manger, but that God would use the witnesses of these common, ordinary, sinful folks to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It puts you and I in great company, if you feel like you're a terrible witness and you're like, I'm too sinful to proclaim about Jesus, guess what? You're in great company with me, with these shepherds, um, as we just witness the things that we witness, right? Like, so you're in great shape. Um, so first, we see the angels are witnessing. Second, we see the um, shepherds are witnessing. Finally, we see in this text, there's a third group of witnesses that are called forth, right? Do you know who the third group of witnesses are? 
it's you. It's me. It's uh, directly out of this text, so, so I'm really clear. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, verse 10. I bring you good news that will, be, that will cause great joy for all the people. You know who all the people is? <laughs> it's you and I, right? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. A Savior has been born to you. A Savior has been born to you and to me. You see, friends, like when there is a birth announcement, this is a birth announcement, right? Like so when we had a birth announcement for our first child, it was said, to Gijo and Amy is born this child, right? And in this text, what it does not say is to Mary and Joseph was born this child. It says, to you was born Jesus, okay? That this is a gift given to all of us, to all who proclaim Christ, that the reality is that the Old Testament testifies to this too, right? Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, Jesus has been born to you. He's a gift from God for you and to you. So, if you want to know with certainty that you know this gift, right? That, this, uh, that the giver himself has become the gift. Don't simply look back to an event in your life that, you ha- that, that, you ha- that happened to you years ago, right? Don't simply look back to the fact that you believe certain things to be true, right? Demons believe things to be true, right? Don't even look to the fact of your insecurities, your brokenness, your doubts, your weaknesses, your sins, Don't fixate on those things. Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus, right? Look inside your heart and ask this question. Has the gift of life that I'm seeking become this giver, right? Has Christmas become about a gift given to me in the person of Jesus? If so, let's go to worship this king, right? Let's go as they did, not just worshiping, but witnessing the things that we have witnessed. He has not restrained himself fully, right? until this matter is settled. And when Christ came, it was settled once and for all for you and I. Let's go and worship and partake of a table and let's go and proclaim his greatness through singing and proclaiming, God, thank you for the gift that's Jesus. Chad is so right in that every good gift comes from you that I only stand here because of your amazing grace, that we only breathe because you have allowed it, that we are held together because Christ has so proclaimed that and said that it is so. And so give the gift of faith, God. Give what only you can give. May we believe that. May we trust that. In matters that are unsettled on this side of heaven, God, may you give us faith to believe that it is finished. Give us the gift of faith through the person of Jesus. May this Christmas be for many an awakening to the gift of Jesus. Come and lead us as we worship. Come and lead us as we witness. Help us speak forth of the things that we've seen and heard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.